Good morning. Welcome, everyone. I wonder how many people who are here today are here for the first time. A few of you, welcome. Nice to have you. And how many people have been here just a couple times? Welcome back. <laughs> nice to see you as well. And the rest of you, I think, are old hats. <laughs> what was that? Old, old new hats? <laughs> um, today, I wanted to talk, so the topic of my talk today is on precepts. And I think uh, we don't really talk, it's not true that we don't talk about precepts that often. Maybe, yeah, I don't know, I feel like we, when I say we, I mean like around here in Zen realms, <laughs> Zen practice realms. Um, in general, I feel like Zen does not offer a lot in the way of explanation. There's a good dose of just kind of being thrown into the deep end and like, okay, you'll be fine. <laughs> Uh, and then being around, you know, there's a great care in Zen of kind of, I don't know if you feel it when you come to a center, but there's a feeling of, um, I don't know, I, I just kind of just think of it as a feeling of being held, right? In a sense of like, you're completely fine, exactly the way you are, this is Suzuki Roshi's quote, you're perfect just as you are and we can all use a little improvement. Right. So that spirit of being held exactly as you are, to come in and um, with your entire history, your karmic baggage, your hindrances, your insights, you're welcome, right? Everyone is welcome to come in and step into whatever this is, this practice. And there's not a lot of instruction on what the practice, I mean, there's some very, very basic instruction in terms of sitting, right? And uh, how many of you uh, were at the uh, introduction? The intro, this morning? Yeah. Did you get some instruction? <laughs> Good. But we have this instruction in sitting, and, and mostly the instruction can be very, the, you know, the, the most basic instruction in sitting is just sit. Very simple. But when you try to kind of do that or put that into practice, a whole bunch of things happen. <laughs> and then it, the question is like, well, is this just sitting? Am I just sitting right now? No, this is thinking. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay, stop thinking, stop thinking. Oh, I'm thinking about not thinking. <laughs> right, so, so the, while the instruction is very simple, the practice is quite complex, right? And not in a, in a way that means that, you know, it's, it's not inherently complex, but it's nuanced. And the reason it's nuanced is because it takes into account our whole life. It's not something that you can kind of carve away from other aspects. We try, we do, that's what we do as human beings, right? We carve up our experience and we label and categorize so we can separate things, right? and have some discrimination and discernment as we go about like, okay, we need to avoid the, the fruits that are going to make us sick 
or you know, the animals that have teeth or something like that, right? So it's very helpful. And we can do that, be in the world and be attuned to what's happening in our lives and in the lives of our culture and our communities, right? We can be attuned to all of it. Um, we are attuned, right? No matter what, we're kind of attuned. Now we can be aware of our attunement or we can be kind of blind to it, right? And we could be attuning to, um, we could be attuning to things that we're not really, we wouldn't really choose for ourselves, but we do it by habit, right? For example, uh, some uh, experience we had in second grade, right? That could still be with us, kind of conditioning our responses and reactions to things, right? That's karma. So in a community like this, there are inevitably uh, ways of conduct or behavior or action. And action is broad here. Action is, uh, encompasses the actions of our body, like physical actions, as well as actions of speech, what we say, what we verbalize, and on top of all of that, actions of mind. Now imagine, like, when you think of actions and things you do and say, right, that's, you know, we, we understand that, but then actions of mind, like what our mind does, um, those are also kind of part of what we mean by action, right, what our mind does. And whether we do or do not have control over that uh, is, you know, it's very interesting to explore that. When people come to a Zen center, oftentimes I think when I, you know, as I started by saying that I don't think that we necessarily talk about precepts so often, um, we talk about meditation. And a lot of times people who come to a Zen center come because they're interested in meditation, right? They want to, you know, learn how to be calm, to calm, to collect their mind and calm down, to find some peace and equanimity, right? And it's kind of a, in, in the beginning, you can think of it, it's, it's kind of a selfish practice, right? I'm suffering, I'm having a hard time in my life, or uh, something's not quite right. I'm interested in pursuing some, some way to become free from something, right? That's what brings us here. And uh, I mean, some people you know, I've, have told me, you know, the reason I started coming was because I wanted to become a better person. I want to learn how to be with others in a way that is reflective of my, you know, my strong aspiration to love, to be loved, and to be free. Right. Now, um, when I say the word precepts, I'm talking about the general category of sila in Buddhism, in Pali. The word is sila, which is ethics, morality, um, conduct, right, encompasses all of that. <coughs> and um, in non-Western forms of Buddhism, I would say that the emphasis is much stronger on sila as a foundation. And less so in, in the West. And I kind of wonder what that, what that is. I, I feel like I've, I've sensed that, I've seen it, 
And I wonder what it is, I think that, I'll ask you, <laughs> when you hear the word morality or ethics or right conduct, right action, what, what does it feel like in your body? Does it feel like something, some, some people are wrinkling their noses. <laughs> I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why. There's sometimes, for some of us, who have been maybe hurt in the past by highly proscriptive, authoritarian um, commandments, rules, laws of behavior, where we've we've been we ourselves have felt harmed, right? And so there's a there can be a natural tendency to be like, oh, I don't know if I want to go into that realm of talking about morality, right? Because I can see the the great harm that can happen from being moralistic or being a, uh, you know in oneself and being a recipient of what feels like uh, judgment, right? Or punishment even, yeah. However, I would have to say that in Buddhism, and you don't necessarily feel this sense as, uh, yeah, it's something that's discovered, but the feeling of sila ideally is one of joy, of joyfulness. The feeling of I'm doing, I'm acting in ways that are of benefit. Because ultimately, all of ethics and morality within Buddhism comes down to one principle, which is that of ahimsa, non-harming, just non-harming, yeah? Now imagine if you were to live a life of complete non-harming, okay? Harvey, you go to the grocery store. You're really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> You're really hungry. <laughs> so, so yeah, so how do you non-harm? Is there a way to be completely non-harming? Does that mean we should just give up on the prospect, <laughs> on the aspiration? Of course not, of course not. So how, how, do we, how do we live with each other? How do we live with ourselves? Right. When, uh, when Ananda, the Buddha's half-cousin, uh, asked him, what is the, you know, what's the benefit of following the, following the precepts? The Buddha said, uh, the benefit of fo uh, following the precepts is freedom from remorse. Right? When uh, taking up the study of precepts, we get to see, we get to study ourselves. We get to study our actions, our karma, our habits, our minds, our mental states, and how those mental states translate or how they erupt in active actions. Right? And we get to see how exactly we, we do harm, how we can't avoid it. So what do we do with that? How do we live with ourselves? How do we live with ourselves? This is all precept study. So sometimes people will say, oh, I'm studying the precepts. Um, by the way, I should just go, uh, I should just point out that every, uh, when we do our full moon ceremonies, it's a ceremony, it's the oldest Buddhist ceremony to date. So 2,500 years old for this ceremony. Held usually in monastic communities, 
It can be held on the night of the full moon, or the day of the full moon, as well as the new moon. And it's a time for everyone to come together in a community and uh, confess their, like, oh, this is how it was for me since the last time we met. These are the things I want to get off my chest, right? So that I can work with any remorse at the ways in which I am not in alignment with my goal or my aspiration to do no harm. Now, um, these, are you all, has anyone, does anyone not know, have never heard what the Buddhist, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts are? Should I read them? Shall I read them? No? Yes. I can? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, the first three, so there's 16, and they're broken into sets. The first three are, are basically um, uh, the, the refuges, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay? And then there are the pure precepts. And actually, when we do the ceremony, we also do the ceremony. Part of the ceremony is to uh, make confession and repentance, right? which, you know, when you hear the words confession and repentance, you know, maybe there's a little bit of like, ooh, what is that? Right? It's liberating. It's liberating, right? When you think about it, if you've done something that you don't like about, that, that you know, you don't, you're not happy with, that caused harm, and you say to somebody, oh, I did this thing, and I feel remorse. And actually, just by saying that I feel remorse for doing this thing, that plants a seed right, in our consciousness. That seed of like an aspiration of like, yeah, actually, I don't want to do that thing that hurts people. I want to stop doing that. Right? That plants a seed which is very, uh, I'll use this word, it's uh, dualistic, but it's a wholesome seed. Right? It leads to the potential for positive change. Right? For pos something positive comes out of that. So there's this, this section in the ceremony where there's confession and repentance, where we just say, wow, I've got a lot of karma. <laughs> I've got a lot of karma, and I've done a lot of things that I'm not particularly proud of. And I vow to try not to do those things in the future. Ah, oh, that felt good. <laughs> I've made it, you know, I made a, uh, an intention. And then the question is like, okay, when you're faced with that conundrum in the, in the next two weeks before the next ceremony. It's like, oh, here I am faced with this situation where I really want to kill this mosquito <laughs> or whatever it is, right? And then you get to play. What do I do? What happens in this moment when I refrain from doing something that may lead to harm? You know, what does that do? You might get agitated. You know, who knows? But like we, uh, what brings us oftentimes to a Zen center is wanting to wake up, right? Wanting to see what conditions us. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I say the things I say? You know, how do I live this life in accord, accordance with my inmost request, with how I, you know, how I feel like I am at my best? Right? We can think of it that way. How I am when I'm at my best. Who doesn't want to be at their best? Right? Who doesn't have that aspiration? So then there's the pure precepts, the three pure precepts, which are 
I vow to embrace and sustain all wholesome action. Basically, I vow to do good things. I vow to lead a, lead a good life. The second pure precept, I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment. What does that mean? To live in accord with enlightenment, to live in enlightenment. Anyone? What does that mean, to be living in enlightenment? Because you question your delusions? Yeah, you question the things that are, are not enlightened, for example. Right? You can question your delusions. When you come and sit zazen, that's a ritual enactment of enlightenment that you're doing. Right? You're dropping all thinking, all the sort of gnawing, the, the way the mind gnaws on things and worries at them and agitates. We have an opportunity when we come sit, wherever we are, whether we're standing in a bus line or you know, at the grocery store, you can still sit, right? It just takes the intention to drop everything and be present. When we come to the zendo and we do it for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, right? it's a little bit more sustained than when we're doing it in the grocery store. But no, no less uh, um, powerful, right? It's very powerful to drop our delusions for just a moment and just simply be resting in our own wholeness and awareness of the present. So I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment, to not act from my delusions. Yeah? And the third precept, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. This is doing no harm. It's more than doing no harm, it's uh, acting on behalf of the benefit of beings. Yeah. And then the t there's 10, what they're called, sometimes called grave precepts, and sometimes they're called prohibitory precepts. They're like the, the do nots. Uh, here at this temple, they have been, uh, they've been re-rendered to include the positive as well as the, the uh, prohibitory, okay? So the first is, I vow not to kill, but to cherish all life. I vow not to take what is not given, but to freely give, ask for, and accept what is needed. I vow not to misuse my sexuality, but to give and accept affection and friendship without clinging. I vow not to lie, but to listen and speak from the heart. I vow not to foster delusion, but to cultivate the mind of clarity. I vow not to use divisive speech, but to take responsibility for my own life. I vow not to praise self or blame others, but to meet each other on equal ground. I vow not to be possessive of anything, but to practice generosity. I vow not to indulge anger, but to accept everything as an opportunity for growth. I vow not to slander the triple treasure, but to honor the Buddha, to unfold the Dharma, and to nourish the Sangha, the community of practitioners. So that's 
the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And when you hear them, um, what comes up when you first, you know, when you when you listen to them or when you first heard them? Anyone? My when I first heard them, uh, I was in San Francisco at the San Francisco Zen Center, and there was this full moon ceremony, and the, my feeling like in the ceremony because it's a call and response chant, right? You're chanting and you're you're verbalizing. And I had this feeling of like, do I know what I'm saying here? Like, what am I committing to? Or what am I saying out loud in the company of all these people? Right? So there's, there can be this feeling of like, uh, I'm not sure about this yet. Right? That's what my first, <laughs> my first reaction was. Um, and that's, you know, that's changed over time. I'm wondering, when you hear these, is there a part of you that feels like, yeah, yeah, that's how I want to live. Right? Now, these are 16 Bodhisattva precepts. This is what is transmitted in this school of, of Buddhism. There are other schools of Buddhism, many, many schools of Buddhism, in uh, the early Buddhist uh, practices. There is the practice of the Vinaya, which is the rules of conduct for, mo for monastics. There's precepts that are offered to lay people. There's, there's like a lot of rules of conduct for, um, for uh, monks and nuns, right? There's, I think, 277 for monks and 321, 322, I can't remember, for nuns. <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> but there's, and, and the rules, these vinya, encompass a lot of different things, right? From don't kill your parents. Right, it's pretty. That's you know, that's one of the great, the, the major precepts. Right? To uh, you know, when you're in the presence of someone who's senior to you, sit lower than them. Right, there's these kind of rules of behavior, etiquette. Right, and Lavinia includes all of those. Right, and women just have more <laughs> to to follow. Um, <laughs> nice way to turn it around, Anne. <laughs> in our school of Soto Zen, uh, Dogen Zenji, who's the founder in Japan, he went to China, and in China they practice, the Mahayana Buddhists do practice the Vinaya. They have their own Vinaya. And uh, each monastery has its own kind of rules of conduct for its, the monastery itself, or for the temple. Right? So at Eheji, Dogen, uh, had what he called the Ehei Shingi. Now, I wanted to just back up a little bit and talk about, so precepts, you can think of them as commandments or laws, right? You can think of them that way. Is that how they're offered, though? Sometimes I think people think of them as these are commandments, thou shalt nots. Right? And what happens if you do the, the, the not, <laughs> the thing that you're not supposed to do? Right. What happens? Guilt. Guilt. <laughs> maybe. Maybe some guilt. Maybe. Maybe some shame. Right. Well, historically, also, you know, uh, more uh, cosmological repercussions for mm. you know being threatened with a, a poor rebirth. You know, it's, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, there was a lot there. Right. right. Heaven and hell. Afterlife. So mm -hmm. In afterlife. Right. In terms of commandments, the in the Judeo-Christian sense of commandments, 
that is is definitely they're they're you know these are uh, in many ways the rules of bec of finding yourself in heaven right now how we orient ourselves towards these is very important in Buddhism in Buddhism, in these precepts, the ones that I just read, they are uh, oftentimes described as these are these are just descriptions of how a Buddha or how an enlightened being acts. Right? This is just how an enlightened being would act. Now, when we go through, there's a ceremony called Jukai, which is a lay ordination ceremony where where people who are uh, studying precepts. Um, may choose to sew what's called a rakasu, which Tim has one here, he's wearing it. And, um, and it's a miniature robe that he's wearing. And the, the ceremony of taking the, taking the precepts or being given the precepts, in that ceremony, there's the line, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. So, entering Buddha's way in faith that we are Buddha. Why would we need to enter Buddha's way if we're already Buddha? This is kind of, this is hearkening back to what I said with uh, uh, Suzuki Roshi's the quote of, you're perfect just as you are and could use a little improvement. So when we're at our, you know, so-called at our best, is something that we can say of ourselves. Wow, yeah, I feel really good. I feel healthy and like I'm at my best. I'm, you know, what are the qualities of being at one's best? Being calm, <laughs> not being riled up or, or angry or gripped with fear, right? Feeling some stability, feeling connected, feeling like you belong in your own skin where you are. Right? That's a feeling of like, oh yeah, I'm kind of I'm at my best here, right? When we're at that in that uh, uh, in the, that realm of feeling like we're we're at our best or we are at our hard to describe, right? At our best, that feels kind of dualistic too. Right? When we feel like we're at our best, though, it's easy to be generous. It's easy to be kind, right? It's a lot easier than when we're feeling freaked out and scared. <laughs> it's a lot harder to be generous and kind and to do no harm. Yes? Would you say, like, as opposed to, like, the best, it could be more, like, the word like, alignment? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Being in alignment with our aspiration, with how we want to be. Yeah. And we feel like we're more in, in alignment. It's kind of a way of kind of being at our best. Right. Thank you for that. The three, there's a threefold training called the threefold training in Buddhism, which is, um, what is this training anyway? What are we training for? Anyone know what we're training for when we do our Zen training? Death? Mm. Mm. Life. Life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of go together, don't they? <laughs> What else are we training? What are we training for? Others. 
for others, ourselves. ourselves, yeah. The training is to uh, to be able to trust in and reflect on our true nature, which is that of wisdom and compassion. To train to reveal that, to make manifest our own innate wholeness. You could call it goodness, although that's also dualistic. These words are tricky. The threefold training starts with sila. It starts with precepts, with morality, with ethics. And then uh, it's, I don't mean to say, I say it starts with it. That's just the first one, right? Then there's samadhi. Do you know what samadhi is? Concentration, stillness, settling, tranquility, right? Samadhi, which leads to prajna, wisdom, insight, insight into our true nature, which is what, by the way? What is our true nature? Buddha nature. Buddha nature. What is that? Our true selves. Our true self. What is the true self? There's no self, especially. <laughs> what is our true self? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, not nothing. Stylist. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. That's an expression. Yeah, that's definitely an expression of our true self. Our true self is non-self. We think of ourselves as being separatable from others, right? As being able to be apart. But our true self is actually completely inter, uh, interconnected, interrelated. Our minds can separate things quite well. That's the nature of our consciousness, is to be able to divide, separate, categorize, right? It's very helpful to do that. But when we don't, when we forget, or we don't uh, pay attention to the basic fact that we are all interconnected, that what I do has impact, that what you do has impact, the impacts of our behaviors ripple out farther than we can ever know, right? None of us would be here if it were not for everything that came before. We can't just say, oh, it's just my parents, right? It's the entire universe. The entire universe has led to this moment in time. We are completely interconnected with one another. So how do we, when we do this training, that when we realize our interconnected nature, it naturally leads to wanting to take care of it, <laughs> take care of others, right? This idea of self and other uh, which we think of sometimes as a very strong distinction. But that starts to blur, and I start to see myself in everything. Everything reflects everything else. Right? This is Indra's net, like a little node with a mirror reflecting all other nodes, spreading out to all infinity. So you could, in sila, samadhi, and prajna, you could go back the other way, right? 
when you have insight into the true nature of reality, which is complete interdependence, non-separation, emptiness is another way of describing it. When we have insight into this true nature that is not separate, that we are not separate, that leads to a sense of calm, abiding, right? The feeling of, oh, I'm actually completely at one with everything. Maybe not one, but not two, right? We're not separate. We're not the same, but we're not separate either, right? So when we start thinking about it, it can get very complicated. But the insight of we're connected actually leads to a calm, and then it leads to Sila. I want to take care of you. I want to take care of myself. I don't want to harm myself. I may have conditioning that leads to my harming myself, but I'd be, you know, be quite happy if that were to fall away, right? Studying and studying, like what are my actions? How are my behaviors? Not in a way that is uh, coming from a, you know, like a judge, right? But from the, the standpoint of um, like being a parent, a loving parent or grandparent, having the mind of a, like a loving grandparent. Right? Yes. I thought it was the other way around. Calm abiding creates the conditions for an experience of yes, insight, insight or mm -hmm. interdependence, and it's sila or practicing ethics. That's the precondition. It doesn't have to be pre, but it is a one of the conditions for the calm abiding. Absolutely, yes. It go, it goes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It it goes yeah. in that direction. It goes in the other direction as well. Yeah. Right? Just like all Buddhist things, you can't really go <laughs> yeah. literally yeah. one way or the other. Right? But they come up together. So this, uh, this freedom, that the freedom of enlightenment, the freedom of being awake to ourselves, to our conditioning, to... Uh, our interdependent nature with all other beings, right? The f there's a freedom that comes from that felt sense. Now, intellectually, we can think, oh, okay, well, I can sort of intellectually understand that. That's what's being said here. But I don't really feel it, right? So we test it. We study. Rinse and repeat, right? We keep, we keep doing this, right? It's kind of like finding one's balance uh, when you're when you're practicing gymnastics, how do you find your balance? You have to be off balance to notice. Oh, I gotta find my balance, right? You have to be, you know, playing. It has to be a dynamic, engaged activity to find one's balance. In the same way, when I talk about studying precepts, it's not like okay, I've studied them, I know them, I can recite them, I can tell you what they are. That's one way of you know having an uh, awareness of precepts. But when I talk about studying the precepts, what I mean is, how do I do these things? And there's different ways of studying them. Ideally, you study them, I think, uh, with others. Right? Because we learn from each other. So for example, if I wanted to take the precept of uh, not stealing, 
I might take that up as a, you know for a week or so and be like, okay, I'm going to really focus on practicing this precept. And then it, what's the next step? <laughs> the next step is what's stealing? What does it mean to steal? Right? What does it mean to take something that's not been given? Now, you can take a very strict view of that or you can take a very loose view of that. So where are we in our, you know, in how we're living our lives? Right? And then the next precept, we can take up a new precept. The next month when we come to a full moon ceremony and we chant this, these verses or these precepts in, in public with one another, we get a chance to reflect. How was it? You know, is there any way in which I didn't follow this precept? Of course there is. <laughs> There's so many ways, right? There's so many ways in which we so-called violate precepts. Now, in terms of precepts, the, the feeling of, um, this came up in, I don't know how many of you read the newsletter, that the Austin Zen Center newsletter. There is a message that came out from our board president, Ernest. You all, did you all read it, the newsletter? Some of you did? Yeah, some of you didn't. Okay, but the question came up, and this has been an ongoing discussion here at the Zen Center for, uh, on the level of our board. What does it mean to say that someone has or has not violated precepts? Is that a worthy endeavor to be the arbiter of whether someone has violated precepts? When you look at your own behavior, what language do you use when you're you know, doing your reflection of how did it go this month <laughs> or this week when you took up the practice of like, I'm going to not take what's not offered? How did it go? What helps us be able to turn this as a practice that's enriching, enlivening, and leads to joy? Because I think that's one part that's incredibly important the precepts are uh, to be able to find ways to work with the precepts that lead to, I mean, what's the point? What's the point of the precepts? To wake up, right? To wake up, to find our calm, to find our centeredness, to find our, uh, what makes us tick, what's important to us, right? Now, Going into that, um, in that discussion, the discussion about violating precepts or not violating precepts, right? there's many different ways of looking at the precepts. You can look at them as rules. That's one way to look at them. And then it can be very clear. Oh, I killed that mosquito, right? Or I uh, took that extra cookie when I, you know, it was meant for the sangha, but I took the cookie out of the box before it was offered, <laughs> or, or you know, whatever it is that we, we look at, right? And we can look at it from the perspective of uh, self-blame or guilt, right? Or we can look at it as very matter of fact, oh yeah, I did this thing, and it made me feel kind of crummy inside, and I don't want to do that anymore because it made me crummy, feel crummy, right? Because it led to harm. And I don't want to harm. How many of you have ever harmed somebody inadvertently? <laughs> How did you feel? Right. What's the feeling of doing that? 
what's a natural uh, response to feeling like I inadvertently harmed someone? I inadvertently stepped on this poor dog's tail, right? There's a feeling of like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Right? There's a feeling there. Is that feeling positive? No. Is it negative? It has, is it neither positive nor negative? What is it, does it have both? No, it's more like, I don't want to do that again. I'm so sorry, I don't want to do that again. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, I don't want to do it. You don't it's blame true. yourself, just, oh, yeah. sorry. Sorry. It can be positive if you then say to the other, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it could, yeah. It, it can have a positive yeah. outcome, right? It may draw you closer to your dog. Right? You're like, oh, and the dog's like, oh, did I do anything wrong? No, oh, you still love me. I still love the dog. It can be very positive, and with humans too. <laughs> it has a, it can have the same effect. Right? Now, when we were, uh, you know, in terms of chanting, chanting these precepts, it's really marvelous to to when you say them, if you do, if you choose to say them out loud. Right? What's the feeling of saying them? What is the feeling of having an aspiration? Having that intention? Hope. Hope, yeah? Hope? It's energizing. It's energizing? You're challenged. Sometimes it's daunting. It's, yeah, it can be daunting, like, oh, I don't know, but I'm going to say it. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's daunting to my delusions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it could be energizing, hopeful, it could be daunting, right? Clarifying. clarifying. Yes, very much so. Very much clarifying. Right? Moving out of confusion. Right? Now, is there a sense in the body when making an aspiration, stating an intention of benefit, a beneficial intention? Is there a feeling in the body of constriction or opening? When you feel hope and a little daunted, energized, what's going on inside? What's going on around your heart? Ah, <laughs> this, this motion, right? There can be an opening. An opening of the heart leads to what? Connection. Connection and the V word. Vulnerability. Vulnerability, right? Which is why when we are feeling uh, defended and frightened, it's hard to open one's heart, right? So, but when we open our heart, there's this kind of shaky feeling. We, we're, you know, we're vulnerable. When we put out our deepest intention of well-being, well-wishes, right? There's a feeling of there's this little shakiness of like, is this okay? You know, can I even do this? This thing I'm saying, I'm vowing to do. I vow to save all beings. How can, you know, how can little old me do that, right? So there can be this dampening effect as well. But as a whole, the feeling of I have an aspiration, and I'm going to put it out there, this intention. I'm going to put out this intention to the universe. Right? There's a feeling of lightness. It's a feeling of being unburdened. This is the freedom. This is the liberation. Right? And then we get to see our actual behavior. 
right? And hopefully without harming, right? The number one thing I want to say about these precepts, again, is that they fundamentally they come down to non-harming. And so when we're practicing with them, when we take them into our lives and we study ourselves by looking at these precepts and how we, you know, how do we relate to them? When we do that and we're curious about it, there's many, way, there's many paths that can be taken. There's many rabbit holes we can fall down, right, in doing this endeavor. Uh, sometimes we might fall into self-blame and feeling uh, judgment. That is not the intention of the precepts. The intention of the precepts lies in non-harming. There's a story that I wanted to find for this, uh, to relate to you. Um, I was going to read it, but I didn't, couldn't find it in time. It's in the, I think it's in the book, uh, To Shine One Corner, which is a book of short vignettes on, uh, from Suzuki Roshi, stories that his students told about things that he'd said. And in one of these, uh, see if I can remember it correctly, in one of these, one of his uh, students or someone had asked him whether because uh, he lived in the building at 300 Page Street in San Francisco, and so lived and ate with and, you know, was around, meditated with his, the, the congregation there. And someone asked him whether he watched his students carefully to make sure they were following the precepts. Right? Do, you, do you pay attention to, like, you know, whether or not your students are following the precepts? And... He said, no, <laughs> but I do watch to see if they're, how they treat each other. I do watch to see how they treat each other. You familiar with that, that story? Again, so what's the intention fundamentally of the precepts is liberation and non-harming. So it's, but it's very important because when we are, when our minds, this is just a feature of human, human minds, right? To try to uh, separate, to, to try to control. There can be a tendency to use the precepts as a way of separating people. Those people are good people. Those people are bad people, right? That's not the intention of the precepts. So when you find yourself, and it's inevitable that this happens, I mean, who here has never felt a judgment, <laughs> right? It's inevitable that that judgment will happen. To take a step back, feel that. What does judgment feel like in your body? Is it, does it feel like freedom? Constriction. It feels like constriction, right? It feels like a narrowing, tightening. Yeah? So to let that be your teacher, right? Your own internal sense, your own physical manifestation of what's happening in your body, to let that teach you. So if you find yourself in practicing the precepts with, with yourself, if you find yourself using them to judge yourself, whether it's judging yourself like, oh, I'm so great, <laughs> or I'm so terrible, Notice how that makes you feel. And if it's making you feel constricted and small, you're not doing it right. 
but it takes practice. Uh, I wanted to also just return to the, uh, the this distinction between um, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts and the uh, Vinaya, the rules of conduct, or the Shingi. In uh, in places in Zen centers, they usually have a Shingi, and we ha actually we do have a Shingi here of sorts. You probably have never seen it because I think we only give it to residents. <laughs> have you seen it? <laughs> well, there's um, some in the posted in the kitchen. Ah, those are the yeah the leave no trace guidelines. Yeah, um, the shingi and there's here's an example of the shingi. This book right here is the Ehe Shingi, which is the the rules of monastic conduct at Eheji Monastery from you know the 1200s when Dogen was practicing there. I'm sure their shingi has changed quite a bit. It would be really interesting to see how their shingi had changed uh, at Tassahara Zen Mountain Center, where um, uh, both Tim and I practiced. Um, there's a Zen uh, Zen shin, shingi, right? Zen. What's it called? Mm -hmm. Sounds right. Oh, there you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you do? I remember that's what it was called. Yeah, the Zen. Shin. Yeah, Zen Shin Shingi, which are the rules of conduct. And, but there's, you know, there's all kinds of, these are specific rules, they're rules. I would say the, the Shingi are rules of conduct. They're guidelines of behavior, how to conduct yourself. So for example, I'll just take one from the Dharma for taking food. I love this one. Do not open your mouth wide and try to eat huge spoonfuls so that the extra food falls down your, into your bowls or leaves a mess on your spoon. Buddha said, while waiting to eat, do not open up your mouth. Also, do not speak while food is in your mouth. Okay? So this is an example of Shingi. Right? Now... If you have to sneeze, cover your nose. Okay, that's that's a pretty good one, right? That's doing no harm. You're not spreading, you know, bacteria or Do not shake your body, hold your knees, sit crouching over, yawn or sniffle loudly. If you have to remove something from between your teeth, you should cover your mouth. <laughs> so, and I don't mean to make fun of them as, you know, but they're 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 sweet. Um, now, I've heard of some schools, I think probably Bruce, your school may do this, I, from what I've heard, where you leave it up to the kids to come up with their own rules. Is that true? Sort of? Well, there's the kids and the adults together. Kids and adults together come up with kind of the guidelines, mm -hmm. right? Now, why do we need guidelines? Do we need them? Because we're savages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bruce. Well, I was thinking of this earlier, actually, um, when you were talking about in commandments versus precepts. Yes. And in the context of, say, the school that I work at, um, I consider a lot of what we do, and this may apply to education in general, as what I call cause and effect instruction. Uh -huh. Like, you can do this. And then this and will that happen. And it's likely to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, of course, uh, the human propensity to find things out the hard way is, is very deeply entrenched. So people then live their own cause and effect and go, oh, 
Okay, yeah. Right. When I hit my neighbors, they retaliate and hit me back, or whatever it is, right? Or when I uh, steal my classmates' lunch and push them down the stairs, I... <laughs> What? So you have to do both. <laughs> okay, when I still to, no, you don't have to do both. Right? But there's there's this feeling of cause and effect in action, right? And um, coming up with these guidelines for how do we live together, right? There's a huge part of of tr what we call training, but it's not uh, training is such an overused word too. But when you anytime you have a group of people that get together there's certain expectations for conduct, right? It's not, is it meant to restrict us? Maybe, some, of, some things, right? In terms of like not, not harming people, right? Just because you feel a strong desire doesn't mean you act on it, right? Even if you feel like you want to, but because of decorum and comportment and because you're in a community where there is cause and effect, you might refrain. Right. So these the shingi are kind of the guidelines of conduct that make it possible for the for us to be together, right? In a way that's harmonious. Usually meant for harmony, for the sake of harmony, for the sake of harmony and for the sake of safety. Right? Yes. I like the word agreements. Yeah, agreements. The agreements that we make with, with one another, with our communities. Right? It's good to have agreements. Yeah, I was going to say, instead of restrictions, I see it more as regulating or, or negotiating, because in a community, I'm doing what I want, you're doing what you want, and, and those things may butt up against each other. Absolutely, what that's what happens. What standards do you have for, <laughs> what standards do you have for uh, the conversation about, well, I'm not bothering you, I'm doing my own thing, but it is bothering me, and working that out among people who share the same space. Right, and key point there is the, the working it out part. Right? It's not fixed. It's not like these are just handed to us as these are, um, you know, the, the Shingi or even the Vinaya. The Buddha did not create the Vinaya. There's no, there no Vinaya in the time of the Buddha. The Buddha did say when people came to him and complained, <laughs> he said, yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> Don't do that. And that's how the Vinaya was born. Right? It was born out of experience of like what works in this community and what doesn't work. Now, in the case of the Theravada Vinaya, um, or even the Mahayana Vinaya, it's not clear that there was ever a mechanism for revisions, and so they just kept growing. Right? I think maybe the same might be true at Tazahara. The Shingi just gets longer <laughs> as new creative people come and find other ways to do things. <laughs> right? Then there's like, oh, uh, yeah, let's not do that. Right? And their agreements. They are, they're agreements that, you know, you can't, they're not necessarily democratic. Maybe in the school system they, they more or less are, right? But there's a sense of they're important for us to be able to live with, with each other. That's why we have them. They're there for our, our benefit. Now, if someone doesn't bow the right way, I mean, there, there's a whole range of them. There's, like at Tassahara, there's only there were only two guidelines that you could be asked to leave for that I had ever seen. I mean, some of them were just taken for granted, like don't hit people. 
Like, I don't think that was even in there, <laughs> right? And if somebody went around hitting people at Tulsa, they probably would be asked, you know, are you in the right place? Like, are you sure you want to be here, right? Um, but again, it's not necessarily, ideally, it would not come from a place of judgment. You're bad. It would come from a place of what works for all of us to be together? What, 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 do we, what agreements do we want to make so that we can be in harmony with one another and that we can focus on our practice together? and not be distracted from our practice together, right? So the only two that I remember at Tassajara that you could be asked to leave for were, um, uh, there was around, around drugs and alcohol. I think that was, that was one that if you were using drugs and alcohol at the monastery, you might be asked to leave. And the other one was sexual misconduct that you might be asked to leave, right? And, um, and again, it's not, the feeling of these, the, the, even when somebody was asked to leave, I don't think I've, at Tassajara at least, I don't think I've ever seen anyone kicked out. Well, that's not true. There was that one guy. You mean like escorted out? Well, no, I've definitely seen people escorted out, but those were kind of people who just showed up, not, not students who came in. Um, but yeah, these are there are agreements that when you and, and everyone would be asked to sign the agreement before you were even admitted into the practice period. It's like, okay, these are the agreements that we make with each other for how to live together in harmony, and everyone would sign it. And if you didn't feel like you agreed with them, then maybe it wouldn't be the place that you wanted to go spend your, your time at. Right? That's kind of the very matter-of-fact intention behind them. Now, when we get into the, uh, when we fall into the moralizing aspect of judgment, right, going beyond discernment, like is this action wholesome or unwholesome? Does it lead to positive or negative consequences? Does it lead to harming or non-harming? Or is it non-harming, right? Those are ways in which we need to use our discernment. But then there's something that we can always do that's extra, right? We can build a story around it. That's a violation of the precepts. To build that story and to be fixed in one's story. Right? And you can feel it. You can feel it when we do it because that constriction comes. Right? Um, in terms of these rules, guidelines, precepts, agreements, all of it. The intention is to allow us all, without exception, all of us, and I don't mean just the people in this room, but I mean everyone. No one is excluded from that. It's the, the project is to allow everyone to wake up to their true nature. That's the endeavor. That's what we're here for. That's everything that we do here is in service. Ultimately, that is our mission statement. Right, is to spread and make accessible and available the wisdom and compassion that is innately ours as part of our birthright. How do we do that? How do we live in accord with that intention? That's the intention of the precepts. That's the intention of the shingi, even. You know, it's kind of like the shingi could have rules like when you fluff your cushion after sitting, turn clockwise instead of counterclockwise. Right. Why is that important? 
Well, when you are in the position where you're in a zendo with a bunch of other people <laughs> many times during the day and everyone's doing their own kind of turning, you're going to have like people bonking their heads against each other. So someone was like, hey, let's all just turn clockwise. Okay, that's our, now that's like part of the guidelines, right? Practical. So I want to uh, end just by saying that over the next few uh, in the next month, I'm uh, one of the things that we're going to do here, not in accordance with the, it doesn't necessarily map onto the practice period. The practice period starts in a couple weeks. October 17th, we'll start a practice period. Um, but this is beyond the practice period. I'm going to be starting a study group for people who are interested in studying precepts with each other. And I'm not sure yet when it will happen. Um, but I think this is something that to be able to do with other people is the most eliminating, right? It's kind of like, I mean, it's not true for everybody, but for myself at least, when I do uh, some, you know, my own routine, sometimes I can be very disciplined about like what I'm, my aspiration to, like say yoga, in terms of doing yoga. I can do my sun salutations and, right? But sometimes doing it with other people is actually much more revealing, right? And I end up, we help each other. One of the reasons why, in terms of the, the ceremony, this oldest Buddhist ceremony that we do of chanting, of reciting the precepts, of reavowing, right? We do it each month. We reavow. It's like that balance beam that we're on, right? We fall off, we get back on. Fall off, get back on. Month after month, we reavow, we restate our intentions. Right? And to do it with the co in the company of others who have the similar intention, right? that's mutually beneficial and supportive, and is in many ways I think just a I think of it as an expression of what's already true that we are interconnected, that what we do, whether it's an action of body, speech, or mind, has consequences. It ripples out. And when we do this with other people, uh, it's mutually beneficial and mutually supportive. So if you're interested, you can please uh, send me an email. And if you have any questions or uh, thoughts about it, I would love to hear them. This is, this, is, um, this is the great activity of Sangha, actually, right? Sangha's great activity is being able to do this endeavor together. So, thank you very much.